0: The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do gooders,
1: with interviews, profiles, and documentaries.
0: This is The Nonprofit Hour on X Ray FM. The show is brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. Today, we'll hear from C.G. Guerin, Artistic Director at Northwest Theatre Project.
2: This is Phil Bussy. It's the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I am so pleased to have in our studio C.G. Guerin, who is the Producing Artistic Director for the Northwest Theatre Workshop, which is a new name for you. How, how are you doing?
3: I'm doing well, thank you.
2: I, actually, I want to start. It's, it's funny, C.G., you, you have said that you are you're nervous, which is so funny because <laughs> you are someone from theater. I don't think of theater people as being nervous to, uh, not that this is a stage, but be on stage.
3: Yeah, well, I am never on stage. I put other people on stage. So it's sort of a shield in a way <laughs> to have other people up there and me hiding in the booth or in the back row. Um,
2: <laughs> Are you sort of the puppet master then?
3: Um, I don't think of myself that way. I actually think of myself more as um, I see my job as sort of seeing the strength in others and then creating an environment where they can do their best work. Theater is highly collaborative. So even when I'm the writer of the piece, it's really just a blueprint. And the talent that goes in it is really what's going to create the entire theatrical experience.
2: And now you just hit on a number of themes about what the Northwest Theater Workshop is. Uh, Collaboration, uh, bringing projects uh, from an idea to reality. Um, Before we get there though, I wanna (laughs) talk about, you guys just recently changed your name. Yes. You guys were Bump in the Road, and now your Northwest Theater Workshop. Why? What was the, the? What's the reason for the the name change after after fifteen years?
3: Well, it it was originally founded by someone else and a different group of people, and and I worked with Carmela and Ellen, the two people that were doing new work with the original Bump in the Road, and. Carmela and Ellen both moved on to other things and were thinking about closing Bump in the Road, just as I was struggling with most of the small theaters that I had worked with as a playwright and a director were just going under right and left, were closing their doors, very small, under $50,000 budget theaters. And um, I sort of turned to a group of other playwrights and performance makers who are self-producing and was just like... We need to do something. Like, what do we do? I don't know. Well, Carmela's about to close the doors of Bump in the Road Theater. <laughs> Maybe we should pick that up because it had the same vision. This idea that um, new plays and performance projects really are vital to the health and sort of the democratic nature of a city. And in order to keep that alive and going, how can we do it in a nonprofit? sort of structure and so we all band together took over bump in the road carmela went on to bigger and better things and <laughs> and we started trying to figure out how to address the fiscal and very practical issues of developing and producing new work in the theater and so we didn't really figure out what we were doing the first year we did everything wrong the second year, we kind of figured out how to do it right, and that's about the time where we started figuring out our programming and changed our name back in March.
2: And when when you said you did everything wrong, <laughs> uh, give me some examples. Let's 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 get into the forensics of that.
3: Um, well, I think we had a very. Oh, we were very idealistic and naive how much work it would take to put an infrastructure together that different playwrights and performance makers could move through to create and develop and produce their work. Um, and we were, none of us had experience in running a company, an actual nonprofit company. So there was a great deal to learn in that respect. Um, all of us had experience in producing. So we knew how to get shows up, but it's a different thing in sort of in in dealing with an actual company because your goal is actually to, um, to build, you know, that the, whatever we do right the first time we maintain that, sort of dispose of what doesn't work and then build from there. So the resources and the knowledge is constantly growing. And building a system to make that possible was actually very tricky and very difficult. And since the the new work not being able to be fiscally or practically what developed well, there wasn't anybody to look to. We could look to certain people. Well, these this group does this well, and this group does that well, and that group does that other thing well. But how do you bring all of that together to really learn from those who have come before us and do something? <laughs> well,
2: and, and I mean, I think it's interesting. Why, why not just be a for-profit company? You don't have to deal with board of directors and some other uh, compliance issues. What what is it that is attractive or supportive about a theater group being a nonprofit?
3: It depends on your goal. If your goal is to get butts in seats, then you are a for-profit company. Your primary goal is to entertain and to be the best entertainer so everybody wants to pay $150 for your ticket price, right? For the nonprofit theater does not have that goal. It really is more about taking the frustration, anger and other community feelings and talking about them through a, an art form in a very constructive way of expressing and um, trying to inspire empathy from points of view that are different from the audiences in the seats. And that goal can't be for ticket sales. If it is, I mean, you, it just doesn't work. You really have to go for the goal of expression and, and bringing community together and promoting an empathic perspective.
2: What it sounds like is you're saying that this is more about the artist and the creation and the process rather than uh, trying to present something that's going to be pleasing or engaging for the audience, Uh, you know, in that... um, A musical might be there, I mean, the Music Man is there to entertain the audience, maybe less so than about the producer's vision uh, or of of articulating a social issue.
3: I think, uh, so the Northwest Theatre Workshop is very focused on process. And so the goal that is set before somebody changes the process and will change the end product that they come up with. The other thing is an artist, a playwright or a theater artist, is nothing without their audience, right? Um, Part of what we do in our develop process is bring the audience in for testing. And instead of testing, did you like the show? We really are testing what they got from the show. um, What did it make them think about? And is sort of the goal of the artists themselves being achieved and the reason that's important is depends on what you see the artists function as and for us we really do see them as some sort of soothsayer in a way and that they're that And we believe in the vision they have to express. And they often don't express it well in the beginning. That's why they need a process. But when they offer it well, it is something that the audience will receive and need. It's also, we are not out to torture audiences. We don't want them to come to be preached at. (laughs) It should be visceral, engaging, and they should leave with something they didn't have when they arrived.
2: Can, I, I want to put a little bit finer point on that so uh when when you when when what was then bump in the road first started in what is now northwest theater workshop uh it, it's it started around some productions about terminal illness Yes. And caregivers yes. It has moved into uh issues to talk about domestic violence mm mm-hmm. and so you were tackling uh uh difficult social issues mm-hmm um, can you talk about some of the current productions in terms of what issues uh, are, are, are at the core of the production?
3: Yes. Yeah, so the two plays we have going into full production this year, which will be the first ones to go through our new process as Northwest Theater Workshop, is Jaffa's Gate, which really focuses a great deal on sort of... Um, in some ways, religious tolerance. It's really looking at sort of uh, how we try to right wrongs through means of vengeance versus, and sort of the road to peace and how difficult that is. Um, And how human it is not to take that road, right? Like (laughs) it's not as though human beings are innately built for um, peace. It takes work. And so it really kind of explores that issue through one man's struggle to um, reconcile sort of the social and cultural issues as he face, faces committing an act of vengeance. The second play is called Noisemaker, and it, it's really about... Um, people dealing with a loved one who's just recently committed suicide and sort of the circumstances that they feel responsible for and are trying to come to terms with with that suicide. Um, and and yes, and those would be basically the two and, and main plays.
2: Why, why is theater a good space to consider these issues? I mean, why, why not, uh, you know, why not a Town hall meeting, or why not in therapy, or why? Why is <laughs> why why is theater? Why do you find theater is a good space to consider those these these you know really uh, important and and sometimes very personal issues?
3: It, theater has a magical way of being the lie that tells the truth. It it removes us from ourselves enough because it portrays somebody else. It does it through story rather than argument and. And the trouble with town halls and stuff, not that I think those cease. I think those must exist, too. We can't approach these problems from one perspective. It, I think they need both. But, um, but argumentation is more about logic, right? And, and really about staying away from logical fallacies and making a strong logical argument. Um, logic has its problems, too. It can tell lies as well where theater is really going from an experiential, very visceral place, comes, slip yourself into the shoes of this man who is struggling with this issue and see that it is not simple. It's not a simple thing to face as an individual human being. See what it's like to be a flawed human being, having to grapple with your own mistakes made with somebody that you love, who's chosen to take their life. These are not they're not simple and through the theater you can really see the juxtapositions of that and you know the contradictions that we are innately have as human beings and i do think that it really promotes more empathy um through that kind of argument and and it is a unique kind of storytelling. It's not that a novel can't do it or a a film can't do it. Those are just different mediums to sort of express story, which story is what really has the power. But theater is, it punches you in the gut. And it says, feel this, because that person is only about 10 feet away from you.
2: (laughs) This is the Nonprofit Hour. We are talking with C.G. Garin, who is the producing artistic director for the Northwest Theater Workshop. Diva, yeah, well, we're going to take a little musical break. Uh, you had brought in a Sound Soundham uh, song to play, and you were you were telling me why this is an interesting song to you.
3: Um, this is "Finishing the Hat" from "Sunday in the Park with George," and it's actually about painting, but I uh, I find it applies to a lot, any art, and sort of the struggling of finishing it.
2: <laughs> Let's take a listen.
4: Mademoiselle You and me, pal. Second bottle. Ah, she looks for me. Bonnet flapping. Yapping Roof Chicken Pastry. Yes, she looks for me. Let her look for me To tell me why she left me As I always knew she would I had thought she understood They have never understood And no reason that they should But if anybody could Finishing the (laughs) hat How you have to finish the hat How you watch the rest of the world from a window While you finish the hat Mapping out a sky What you feel like planning a sky What you feel when voices that come through the window Go until they distance and die Until there's nothing but
5: sky
4: And how you're always turning back too late From the grass or the stick or the dog or the light How the kind of woman willing to wait Not the kind that you want to find waiting to return you to the night Dizzy from the hat Coming from the hat Studying the hat Entering the world of the hat Reach through the world of the hat like a window, back to this one from that. Studying a face, stepping back to look at a face, leaves a little space in the way like a window, but to see it's the only way to see. And when the woman that yourself. Well, I give what I give But the woman who won't wait for you Knows that however you live There's a part of you Always standing by Mapping out the sky Finishing a hat Starting on a hat Finishing a hat Look, I made a hat Where there never was a hack.
2: This is Phil Bussey. it's the nonprofit hour. We are happy to be talking with CJ. Guerin, who is the producing artistic director for Northwest Theatre Workshop, formerly Bump in the Road. And they have two uh, do I call them productions? What, what 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 do I call what do I call what you do? Somehow saying a play seems like it doesn't capture entirely what's going on.
3: Um, well, yes, this year they will be full productions, but what they do is they first go through a create process then they go through a develop process and the develop process is when we start inviting an audience to start uh seeing the plays and 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 the different performance projects we're doing and sort of give us feedback on what we're accomplishing with it and now with our produce um, program we have these two plays in our produce program and what we will be opening up to the audience for that is the first reads the first time the actors read the read the scripts uh, people will be allowed to attend those and the designer runs to really see how a designer comes in and makes that happen and then the actual shows the full production of the shows will be in March uh, late March, early April at Shaking the Tree Theater.
2: So, I mean, the, the the process of making the sausage is 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 very important to this. I mean, as yes. as much as the final product, if not more.
3: Yes, absolutely. Yes.
2: And and who who's all involved in this then? I mean, this this seems like um, it's it's not the same as coming with a finished script and then the actors sort of uh, plug and play uh, to, to, does that ask more from the participants? Obviously that asks more from the participants, but who is coming to this? What sort of actors, what sort of, uh, producers really want to go through this, this much process? Uh,
3: (laughs) Oh, we have, um, professional directors and actors who partake I could list them if I could remember but mostly right now it's Michelle Seaton and Sam Hall for our full productions this year Um, we also uh, have and we're a part of the internship program with the University of Portland Um, and we have a number of seasoned professional actors that we also utilize in that we mix up the casts and the design crews Uh, one of our goals is to make it very inclusive so that the the top Professional theater people that we're able to work with are passing down their knowledge and sort of taking the people just emerging into the local theater scene, really getting them to understand how to do not only new work, but new work on shoestring budgets, which is our budget. (laughs) It's very shoestring.
2: Yeah, I wanted to, because this is the nonprofit hour, I want to talk a little bit just about the. The financial and the administrative stuff. Are, so, you are you guys supported by grants, or is this strictly off of ticket sales? How? What? What sort of revenue flow, or where does the revenue come from?
3: Right now, we've been mostly off of individual donations, and and we're an all volunteer organization. We do provide stipends for artists, but it's like at the level of transportation, and we work with local businesses to be able to feed them. And, and we do, we have a sponsorship from Microsoft to help us with our create process. And we have, um, Adobe has also been a company that's been very supportive of us. And then just individuals from the community. We haven't started our grant writing process for what we are now um, and, until just this past May. We started really ramping up. Uh, writing for grants. Prior to our new system, um, Bump in the Road was very well supported by individual donations and grants and various foundations as well.
2: And is that that tough? I mean, uh, left brain, right brain? Oh my Uh, gosh.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes, it's very hard and and somewhat absurd um, to the hats that you have to try and wear to do it. Um, is very difficult. You have to believe in what you're doing or you would just give up.
2: And let's I, I want to talk take a step back and talk a little bit about you and and uh, your background. Were you involved in theater growing up?
3: Um, accidentally without really knowing what it was, you know, just trying to do shows with friends on corners and garages and stuff like that. I didn't get sort of, um, involved in more of a formal way until I, until I was in Los Angeles, (laughs) um, young. And then I did, I, I went to the Los Angeles Theater Academy down there and worked with a number of small theaters down there before, Going and doing my undergrad work.
2: What what was it that uh, drew you to theater? What was was the uh, charm or the appeal?
3: I don't actually know, to be honest, because I was drawn to it before I knew what the name of it was. My family didn't go see the theater. I wasn't in schools with theater programs, so I didn't really have any exposure to it. I just had a desire to do shows despite knowing what they were. As I got more exposed to theater, it just was my calling
2: and and then what what brought you um up to Portland?
3: My daughter. <laughs> <laughs> my husband and I was, was started a family, and we wanted to raise her in a world that was an ambition first, which as much as I enjoyed l a it was a very ambitious first town, and we wanted something that allowed us to kind of be the kind of family life and the kind of parents we wanted to be, but still have the art and the culture and the food um, that that we really loved. And Portland really is kind of an incredible city in that respect.
2: And I, I want to use that as an entry to talk then about uh, theater, in Portland, I mean, you said Portland is uh, a very remarkable city in that sense. And I, and I think increasingly people are worried that that might become past tense um, as there are more people moving here, as the city becomes more crowded, uh, as there are more theater groups and are you finding that from the inside of the theater community looking out or that that there are more theater groups that it is becoming more competitive to get people there or is it the reverse more people here mean more people that are going to theater and that makes it easier
3: uh i I think that the people coming here are attracted to Portland for the right reasons, at least those that I know. It's, it's, my husband and I have been here now 10 years, and so we know an extraordinary number of artists who have come for similar reasons as, as us. And they, 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 not, they bring a great deal of professionalism and knowledge with them. Um, So I think that is kind of extraordinary. The arts are also going through some kind of transition that I don't quite understand yet. And that's national, it's not just here locally. Um, And I I think we're still waiting to see how that's gonna play out. But I think in 10 years, on a national level, theater is going to be different than it is now.
2: And I, I understand that you're saying that you're you're not really quite sure of how that's changing, but can you uh, hover on some of those elements that you see that are that are changing right now and and just explain what you're what you're saying a little bit more
3: um. So it's the people that are emerging into the field now really want to produce their own work, which wasn't so much true when when my generation was just emerging and starting to practice. There was only a handful of us that wanted to do that, that really wanted to be in control or not necessarily in control, but wanted to um, have more say in the course that they're career took you know what kind of work they did and what audiences they presented it to and things of that sort and when it happened to fit into a larger company's um, programming model then great but if it didn't well fine the warehouse down the street will be fine there is a huge shift in the fact that that seems to be the opposite now that when we deal with emerging artists now we're finding that that is their first choice not their second and that is that is significant it allows organizations like fractured atlas to not only exist but thrive and i think become more of the norm So that is most specifically what I would say. There is also a thing specifically in theater that it takes an incredible amount of resources to do production, especially at a professional level. And there are little theater groups crazily popping up all over the place, but not just in Portland. From what I see, it's happening everywhere. And I think for the reason I just stated. So I do think that the future of theater is that, how they're going to allow this sort of independent, entrepreneurial art artist, to function in a field that demands so many resources? How are we going to make that happen and, and happen to the benefit of the community that it serves?
2: and you have an answer for that
3: that's what i'm trying to figure out like <laughs> i have a few ideas <laughs> you can but that is part of what we're about right we do co-productions the the playwright or the performance maker who originates the work has to be involved in the producing process and we have two goals a if they decide to be these kinds of artists that leave us and go produce with somebody else that they're better producers when they leave they have a more professional skill set and, and can do it at a higher level than when they entered. And the second one is to just sort of have a system that requires every artist who partakes in the process to give something to the company as the company gives to them.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's a very exciting time in the arts. I yes. Mean, and, and, and you know, it's, it's maybe too simple of a word or overused word, but this idea of empowerment and entrepreneurship. This is the Nonprofit Hour. I am talking with C.G. Guerin, who is the Producing Artistic Director for Northwest Theater Workshop. I want to talk maybe a little bit more specifically about Portland and in your ten years here, how how have you seen theater changing in Portland?
3: I think the Fertile Ground Festival that they have every January here has sort of invigorated a spirit of wanting to create new work here. Um, I I think the attraction of all the artists that have been moving to Portland and wanting to call it home has brought a great deal of knowledge and experience to Portland that's happening in these tiny little workshops and studios that you don't even know exist because they're tucked away in corners. Um, and I think most significantly, that's what I would see. That's what I see happening. It's I do believe it's a slow a slow transition. I've only been here 10 years, which sounds like a long time, but in some ways in the scope of a theater life, of a scene, it's not that long. And Coho has, I mean, I said Portland has had Coho, <laughs> the theater Coho, for quite some time. And it is already a very innovative process even now. And I don't know how long they've been around, but they've been a lot around longer than I've been here. That is already a co-producing model. And I think, I don't know of any other theater that does it, that does has their model, so they've already had Portland already had the spirit before I saw it in other cities with with just being able to support a theater like Coho
2: and 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 part of the co-production model um, I, I I would guess is also potentially taking it out of traditional theater venues, and finding different spaces is is that something that you're seeing more of and is is that something that's exciting is to it reimagine some of the landscape or some of the venues.
3: Yes, I think this. So Coho does it with just their theater. They're always in their theater, but yeah, the doing theater in other venues is sometimes the best way to go because it can really change the entire experience for both the artist and the audience, um, and. There is a local theater group who does that really well called Hand to Mouth, and they're more of a performance project-based organization. But they do some wonderful work in strange spaces. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and 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 um, Northwest Theater Workshop, though, what's uh, describe your venue to me and describe your space.
3: This year we're going to be at Shaking the Tree, and it's it's a it's a small house. It's only fifty seats a 50-seat house, and it's it's very raw space. So it basically is a warehouse with some flats and a grid and 50 chairs for you to work with. I actually love that. It's not a technician's dream because it's not as equipped as you'd like, and it's a little cobbled together with equipment and stuff like that. But the raw space really allows you to invent
2: Sounds like it's almost like a blank, blank canvas.
3: Yes, it I mean, is exactly a blank canvas in three-dimensional space, yes.
2: C.G. Guerin is the Producing Artistic Director for Northwest Theatre Workshop. Thank you so much for talking with us today, and good luck with the uh, upcoming process and season.
3: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
2: And let's take it out with one more song that C.G. brought in for us
5: i mean i don't understand completely i'm not surprised But he combines all these different trends i'm not surprised you can't divide our today into categories neatly
4: what matters is the means not the end i'm not
5: surprised that That is the state
4: of the art my dear that That is the state of of the art it's not enough knowing good from rotten. You're telling me. When something new pops up every day. You're telling me. It's only new, though, for now. Nouveau! But yesterday's forgotten. And tomorrow is already passing.
2: There's no surprise.
4: That is the state of the art, my friend. That is the state of the art.
3: He's an original. Was. I like the images. Some. Come on, you had your moment, now it's George's turn. It's George's
4: turn, I wasn't He's talking turns, I'm enough. talking art. But is it really new? Well, uh, no the oh, yes, it's all collaborator, it's all promotion. Personal. But then that is the state of the art, isn't it?
5: Whoa.
4: Art isn't easy.
5: Even when you are a fighting for prizes.
4: No one can be an oracle.
5: Art isn't easy.
4: Suddenly, you're past it.
5: A uh, compromise, and then when it's record. Art isn't, art easy. isn't art easy. Art isn't art easy. Isn't art easy. Isn't you
0: look at it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. The Nonprofit Hour is brought to you by the generous support of these sponsors. Bend Film Festival. The Nonprofit Hour is supported in part by the Bend Film Festival, Bend's premier cultural event featuring this year's best independent films, ideas, music, and parties. A time to meet filmmakers and hear their stories. The Liberation takes place October 6th, through ninth, more information and tickets are available at bendfilm.org. Livewire Radio, Livewire Radio is a supporter of the Nonprofit Hour. Don't miss their upcoming show on October thirteenth. They've got Phoebe Robinson, Bill Oakley, and Blind Pilot. Thomas and Sons Distillery, Thomas and Sons Distillery supports the Nonprofit Hour. Thomas and Sons is the new distilled spirits project from Townshend's Tea Company. They craft everything in-house from scratch ingredients and strive to offer inventive additions to the worlds of both tea and craft spirits. Now we'll hear a short interview with Charlotte Parrott from Patch.com.
2: Uh, So we have on the line Charlotte Parrott, who does audience development for Patch.com, which is a a relatively new uh, media service. Charlotte, why why don't you explain what what Patch is?
6: Absolutely, Phil. So Patch is a neighborhood news website. Uh, We focus on hyper-local news, and we have almost a thousand sites now. We recently opened in Portland uh, in the last couple months, and we are... Um, sort of trying to get our footing in the area by reaching out to uh, different nonprofits. That's sort of been our, our grassroots approach. And we're sort of a community uh, bulletin board, if you will, for a lot of these different organizations to communicate with each other uh, and let the rest of the uh, Portland and surrounding Oregon community know about all the great work that a lot of these organizations are,
2: are doing. Now, what's 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 wrong with um, our our local newspapers um, that they can't do that? What why you know why why are you guys rolling in and doing this?
6: So that's a great question. Our site's uh, very user friendly. It's a great resource. There's nothing wrong with local newspapers, but while they can cover things that are happening in the neighborhood, we also tackle national stories as well. So it's breaking news that. It's election coverage as well as um, five pets to adopt from the Oregon Humane Society.
2: Um, Excellent. I mean, do you guys have like, you guys could connect it in, it'd be like five pets that look like Hillary Clinton or five pets that look like (laughs) Donald Trump that you could adopt? Um, I gotta,
6: I gotta write that story idea down, Phil. That's great. <laughs> um, I think one thing that Patch does well and different than a lot of the, a lot of local newspapers, not to knock them, is that we are a resource for nonprofits specifically because we allow for them to um, post articles and events on our site directly, as well as onto the Patch calendar. We, for free. All of this is free, and we've spotlighted um, a couple of, of great orgs in the area that have um, been great to work with, like the Portland Ballet, Portland Film Festival, Habitat, Oregon Humane. A lot of just you know really impressive organizations, and um, it's been it's been super fun to sort of profile them. And in the pipeline coming up, we have a uh, nonprofit directory that is going to allow for nonprofits to list themselves directly on uh, the patch and create sort of a bio for themselves, post their own announcements, use their own language. It's really a way for nonprofits to have agency and autonomy in terms of you know the content that they're getting out into the world, um, but still keeping it local, user-friendly, and really rooted in community
2: and 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 how much is this curated and, and i guess the 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 gist of that question is um you're you're wanting the nonprofits to have agency and to be able to do this themselves but at the same time you know you want to avoid some sort of a cyber clutter so how much do you curate this how do you create that balance between those those two ideas
6: that's a great question uh so at at this moment it's sort of um a conversational curation, if you will. Uh, it's a matter of just reaching out and talking to people in, in a person-to-person way. Um, it's less uh, streamlined and, and formatted and, and more about just talking to the people in Portland. And in this way, it's sort of curated itself. That, the clutter hasn't been an issue uh, because the content and the information that the nonprofits want to share on Patch is good stuff. It's it's stuff that the people in Portland want to know about, and it hasn't been a problem um, in terms of you know there being in, uh, an abundance of of people doing good work. You know that's not a that's not a bad problem to have.
2: Yeah, and, and so how do you how do you envision uh, say an executive director for a, a medium sized nonprofit in Portland using this that you know he or she will sit down at at uh, their desk in the morning and and pop this on and sort of catch up on, on the day's news and, and use it like a, an, you know, a, a, a teletape to, to get the news source that they, or the news information they want? Or how do you envision people using it on the consumer side?
6: So I think the, so first of all, we are a news site. So the news is there. It's breaking our, we have an editor on the ground and in Portland named Colin Miner who's been with the, was previously with the Oregonian for 25 years he's a very uh, he's a reporter he's a newsman um, has been for his entire life so that content's there uh, but in addition let's say that you know the director executive director of the Boys and Girls Club of Portland sat down at her desk and said popped up pulled up the Portland patch she would see everything that's going on in the community, traffic alert, school closing, weather, and then she would also be able to plug in her um, social media streams. So the Boys and Girls Club Twitter account, Facebook account, she'd be able to stream that directly onto Patch, um, and so that everybody could see it as well. Um, then, you know, let's say that there was an event. The the next day, they were having a fundraiser. She would log into the calendar feature, post that event directly onto the Portland Patch calendar, Uh, and then, let's say, you know, the next day, she gets an email that's asking about um, what is coming up in the future for the Boys and Girls Club. She could go through and schedule a series of events on the Portland Patch calendar, link that to um, that her email or any of her, you know, auxiliary social media sites and it's sort of a way for nonprofits to get all of their information in one place and also get all of the information they want disseminated out into the community. Does that make sense?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It sounds fantastic. It sounds like a great resource for nonprofits uh, here in Portland, as, as well as to get more of a, a regional, if not national scope of things. And, and obviously, it's easy to remember Patch.com. Uh, we have been talking with Charlotte Parrott, who is audience development
0: for Patch.com.
2: Thank you so much for taking the time.
6: Absolutely, Phil. Thanks for having me.
0: Now we'll hear from Philip Cuomo. Producing Artistic Director at Coho Productions in Northwest Portland. Phil and Philip discussed Coho's founding and the theater's process of finding its place in Portland after 20 years.
2: This is Phil Bussy. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm really happy to be speaking with Philip Como. Philip, Philip is the uh, Producing Artistic Director at Coho Productions, which, congratulations, has gotten past its 20th year. Right. We're starting our 21st right now. That's exciting. It is. It's a long time. It is. I mean, and it's and it's a long time in terms of that really reaches back into you know I think what's what's being termed as old Portland, uh, 20th century Portland. Cool. And uh, how much you know? How much has? Uh, let's let's start with a general question. How much has theater changed in Portland, as as Portland has changed itself?
1: As Portland has boomed. Yeah. Uh,
2: theater has boomed as well. Uh, when
1: I got into town in 2003. Um, there was Portland Center Stage, Artist Repertory Theater. This project was starting called Profile Theater, which has been going for quite some time now. Um, and there was Coho, kind of in the background. Now there's Third Rail Repertory Theater, Portland Playhouse, um, Theater Vertigo has been around a long time. Profile has established itself. Artist Repertory Theater, which had been a small professional theater contract, has gone League of Resident Theater this year. So the Uh, theater community boomed with the way the city boomed as well um coho uh got started in the mid 90s gary cole bob holden co for cole ho for holden that's how that got started even though you know we've messed around with the salmon reference a little bit we also um recently switched some of our branding so collaborative homegrown coho collaborative homegrown theater um Gary and Bob got started in a storefront when uh Bob directed one of Gary's plays and uh Gary who was a real estate attorney recognized that there may be people who want to produce theater so he and Bob got together and formed coho to provide support for theater artists to do their thing. So resource, money, time, and space. And then in 2001, the space on Northwest Raleigh Street, right off of Northwest 23rd, the Coho Theater now, which had been a book bindery, was um, renovated. Um, Slab Town. And when I got into town in 2003, Slabtown was warehouses and quiet, b was around the corner, but quiet place. Conway Freight down the block. Now, on Raleigh, there's a New Seasons. There's five or six big condominiums have gone up. There's a a new light was just put in on Northwest 23rd and Northwest Raleigh. So the
2: street has exploded. You, you know you've made it when there's a traffic light and a new seasons that have been installed.
1: Right. Well, I think the light came because of the new seasons. <laughs> One led to the other.
2: I mean it's 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 a beautiful space. I mean going going back to the that theater the theater space that you have on Raleigh it's it's a beautiful space.
1: I love it. It's tiny, 95 seats. We um Rory replaced our seats back in December. It had been 99 seats, but we've got these new ones. Uh Rory worked very hard on it. So I need to mention that. Um uh it's a thrust stage, so the um uh, stage juts out 90 degrees and it's three quarters round. So it's, it requires um, real intimacy in the performance. The audience is right. In the play, the play is right in the audience's lap.
2: Yeah, I mean, it it really does emphasize the idea of live theater. I mean, you're 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 there. Yep. You're 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 mingling. You're walking across the stage. When you get to your seat. Yep. Uh, you know, I've, I I was lucky enough that to have uh, my play, the Match.com monologues. Uh, perf- performed there and that was a one man show and, and who and he was largely in his boxer shorts so it was a very intimate. <laughs> uh, and I've gone to a number of uh comedy shows there as well. Right. And uh the retelling of uh Rudolph the yeah. reindeer. Shirley McClendon's group. And and that is such a great experience because I mean you feel as if and the actors can. They could reach out and touch you. Reach out and touch you,
1: yes. It's, it's quite intimate. And we do do quite a bit of um, uh, small plays because of the size of the space. So a lot of solo stuff. And um, uh, our Summerfest programming does these small um, alternative style plays. And right now we have The Gun Show running through uh, the uh, October 3rd. And that's a, a one-person show but there are two people involved. The playwright is in the audience, and the actor on stage is actually playing the playwright and speaks directly to the playwright and nudges it along. It's the gun show. It's a fabulous, um, actually, exploration of that sort of autobiographical confessional one-person play. It really
2: turns it a little bit on its head, so we're very proud of it. Ellen Lewis wrote it. And and how unique is the... this co-production man uh style is is, is other th- other theaters in town aren't doing that necessarily yeah
1: let's 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 fill everybody in on the co-production model actually um most theaters select a season then find the theater artists necessary to bring that season to life coho starts by petitioning and requesting proposals from the theater community saying hey what do you want to do And then there's quite a rigorous process. The submission guidelines, the proposal guidelines are dense because we want to discourage people who are not of strong will. Um, The proposals are are read by a small artistic council. They get weeded down to about eight to ten. Six to eight are given interviews and three are selected for the season. So um, we love to say that our vision is democratic. It depends on what the theater community wants to do. The people who have been selected make a commitment beyond their artistic job on the project. So oftentimes a director um, is petitioning or an actor is petitioning, but they then become the co-producer of the project and they're responsible to raise a little bit of money they're responsible to do a lot of the nuts and bolts of the direct um manifestation of the project and coho provides resource in terms of money administrative support to make those things happen um Opens doors for people to find some money to raise as well as provide a substantial marketing infrastructure to keep the play going and then um Coho has a built-in audience over the years. And so, you know, I love to say um, when a play is selected and Coho opens the door, Coho's guaranteeing 30 audience members, 30% of our house is going to be filled. The co-producer is going to generate another 30%, another 30 people. And the rest is if the play is good, we start to fill it up.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it seems as if is almost sort of a, a, a brand. People are going to... Coho as a brand as opposed to maybe going to the play uh, foremost. I love it. My marketing coordinator, Jesse Drake,
1: is loving that you just said that. <laughs> we've been trying to do that, actually. For years, um, Coho um, did these plays in their season, but then sub just sublet the space when it was available. Over the last three or four years, we've made a strong commitment to curating every play that comes into the building. Because if somebody walks into the Coho Theater, they think it's a Coho show. So it can't be anybody in there Uh, we have to as a group our entire staff needs to be able to talk about the reason why um, that play is in that room what is the value of that particular project and that's what we do really um, specifically during our season selection process we're we're making a, a choice based on quality and what we consider value And then when we have um, open space and a a group wants to come in to rent, we have to determine if that project that they're proposing has some value in our overall year. That's why Shelley's group, um, The Rudolph Show, is like perfect. They do something different than the co-host season, but they're going to do it in their unique style and very, very creatively. Um, We have Jason Rouse and Bree Pruitt coming in for two weeks. um, In a couple of weeks, they uh, both work for Livewire Radio and are um, known quite well in the sketch comedy circuit around town.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You guys have had some wonderful uh, sketch comedy that's been hosted there as well. Uh, This is the Nonprofit Hour. We're talking with Philip Como, who is the Producing Artistic Director at Coho Productions. How about let's take a quick music break. All right. You got a suggestion?
1: Well, here's one for, my, um, for all of my clown students. Senegal Fast Food by Amadou and Miriam.
2: Sounds great. Let's take a listen.
7: Faut filer dans l'ascenseur, ascenseur pour le ghetto. Au Manhattan, fast food, Dakar, Sénégal, cinéma de Paris.
2: is the Nonprofit Hour. We are talking with Philip Como, who is the Producing Artistic Director for Coho Productions. I love that song. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to just uh, rush right by it. No, no, it's
1: great. It's great. Um, uh, that's uh, part of uh, a ritual I do um, to begin every clown class. I, I teach um, at Portland State University and at the Institute for Contemporary Performance here in town. Um, I teach clowning and um, we begin. We begin every every class session with this really uh, strong dance ritual. That's about twenty five minutes of like real intense, real ecstatic um, dance. And Senegal fast food is the climax of the ritual. A few years ago, I was sitting in a theater at the Winningstad, and uh, it was during a tech rehearsal for a show at Third Rail Rep. And um, all of a sudden, it was it was tech rehearsal. So, uh, you know, they were testing music and and so on and we were sitting there for hours but all of a sudden I started kind of bouncing in my seat. I just, I couldn't sit still. And then I realized Senegal fast food was playing through the system, and I immediately jumped into my clown uh, energy. It was super cool.
2: Yeah, we, I mean, we could have a whole discussion about the clown community here in town. It's, 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 it's
1: quite large. It's booming. Talk about booming. Um, there's a whole group that has moved up uh, from Northern California, the Delarte School, Um, They go to either San Francisco or they come here, it seems. So they're everywhere. Um, uh, I work for, as I was mentioning, Institute for Contemporary Performance, which is part of the Portland Experimental Theater Ensembles. educational program, PEAT. And uh, yeah, there's uh, our Summerfest programming too at Coho taps into some of my old um, clown cohorts from back in the day. This summer we had Kelly Kinsella come in to do her one-person show, uh, When Thoughts Attack. Kelly um, has an anxiety attack over whether she should order the salmon or the steak at a seafood restaurant. It's pretty hysterical.
2: Let's let's get back to, to Coho. Yeah. Um, I, so I want it, to... It's an interesting model that Coho has, the co-production model, which we were talking about before the music break. How do you guys measure success? And meaning, uh, is it financial success? Is it artistic success? Or how do you balance those two? Because, I mean, obviously you want both of them to happen, but is is there one that's more prioritize than the other?
1: Well, you know, um, uh, over the last few years, we have um, created a pretty um, stable financial situation. Uh, Coho began to um, expand its donor base and receive some prominent Grant funding from foundations and government agencies in a way that provided um, a sense of stability economically, so that we could, for certain, begin to compensate the artists involved and and staff. It's not for profit, so the margin is tight. You know, it's always difficult. But for us, um, uh, success is, is determined based on the reaction that an audience has in a specific show, so that even if there are only 30 people in the house, if they leave moved, if they are energized, excited, if they begin to think more broadly and with deeper imagination, and here's the big one, if they began to empathize with the action of the play, then we feel like we have succeeded.
2: Yeah, and it, you touched on it just briefly, and I want to expand on it a bit the the nonprofit model mm-hmm. because this, after all, is the nonprofit hour. But it's it's an interesting as a nonprofit. I mean, first off, you guys have a built-in revenue stream, which not all nonprofits have. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's if you're doing social services, your yes. clients aren't necessarily. I mean, but why why is the nonprofit model important? coho I mean because you you could be a for-profit potentially
1: well potentially right most theater most successful theater um is not for profit there are there's there is a commercial model out there but it becomes the big broadway shows and things like that um it is expensive um to hire professional actors crew members designers to be all present for the run of a show to be there live in front of an audience. So theater is expensive to produce. And what Coho does is um, bring up or, or select plays that... Um, aren't necessarily commercially viable, but have either a message or a experience that we determine is worthwhile for our audience. And that doesn't mean, that mean, therefore, that we're not going to be filling the house all the time. Um, It's not always going to be fun and games. There's going to be quite a bit of um, provocation and thought, and um, artistry that is um, valued at greater than what we can generate in terms of our earned revenue. So our our model is about 50-50, 50% Um, 50 of of our overall revenue every year comes from ticket sales, and the use of our space, and the other fifty percent comes from um, mostly individual donors, but um, donations from foundations and government agencies as well.
2: And, and and now Coho has both a board of directors and a creative board.
1: Yeah, an artistic
2: council. An artistic council. Sure. And w- w- first off, I mean, with with a board of directors, I mean, their job is to make sure that Coho stays financially uh, solvent and sustainable and functions well. Uh, does that ever have tensions with the creative process or how do you assure that it doesn't?
1: Well, it does have, t- it inherently has some tension, right? Um, uh, it's not only, the board is not only responsible for the vi- financial viability. They're also really in charge of, um, the mission of the organization right and so we've talked about broadening perspectives and engendering empathy but the 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 key piece of Coho's mission is to support theater artists so oftentimes the board helps us evaluate the programming that's coming in in terms of um, its risk versus reward and when I say risk I don't mean box office sales, but I mean, um, are, is, the, is the work being put in there? They hold me to that value statement that I said before. They, if, if I can speak to the board and make a strong case for why that project is there, the board, well, gets on board. <laughs> um, uh, so what they're doing is vetting the work that the Artistic Council has already vetted. Um, the Artistic Council is so important at Coho for understanding the projects that are being proposed and help shape an overall season. But, but the three projects that the Artistic Council helps choose is only, ultimately, 12 performance weeks in the given year. And we've got to fill... 52 weeks. And Coho's board tasked me quite a while ago was saying, okay, there are 52 weeks in the year. This space has to be hopping, you know, 40 to 45 weeks a year, we need to have an audience come through the doors. And so um, the information that's gleaned during the Artistic Council conversations is helpful in determining how else to use the space. And so the board has provided um, that financial stability, governance in terms of um, financial resources, but
2: also the impetus to sustain long term. Philip Como is the producing artistic director at Coho Productions. What would be three adjectives you'd use to describe Coho, and and you know setting it apart from some of the other theater groups in town?
1: Um, well, collaborative. Um, intimate and irreverent those are the three that i think of um innovative actually if we want to do three eyes and i'll honor i <laughs> will back to jesse our marketing uh manager intimate innovative irreverent those are that's how we book our summer fest programming um the the space is intimate the work is innovative, and there's always that sense of irreverence,
2: right? People aren't 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 going there to see uh, the the Bard and Shakespeare and 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 necessarily serious. And I've seen some fantastic productions a few years ago, a, a one man show uh, about, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but he was he was Irish and he was sort of coming to terms uh, with with the uh, the conflicts in Ireland over a soccer match.
1: Oh yes, yes, yes. A night in November. Damon Cupper.
2: And it was it was a really I it was challenging. It was funny at times. Right. It like it, it just sort of set off some emotional depth charges. Ding ding ding. That's and, what we want, right? But it was
1: funny, wasn't it?
2: It it was it was funny, it was sad, it was funny in a bitter Sort There's. of
1: way, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: You know, and and it it was theater that I wasn't going to see at Portland Center Stage. It wasn't a large production, right. In terms of uh, the the costuming or the scope of it, but it was large in terms of its both. I think its ambition and its emotional. It's
1: fantastic, I you know. We just we're gonna clip that out and use that <laughs> somewhere along the line. I mean that's kind of the thing that we want to do. And I, I, you know, Shakespeare in the Bard that can be pretty irreverent too. I mean, right now down at Post Five they're doing the Bombity of Errors or something like that, which is you know a take on the Comedy of Errors. So so there's a way to 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 play all of uh, all of the great works in a way that that engenders that sense of of silliness and fun. Um, There is a a high level of professionalism that goes on in Coho. That's for certain. Um, We don't have the resources of Portland Center Stage, but we don't really want to do those big types of shows anyway that that you're speaking about. We want to kind of bring it down. We want to get really close to folks. We want people to have um, a visceral experience in the room. That's what makes it different than watching Netflix on the couch you know um, and you know at the theater you can bring your wine into the theater too but the thing that's different is that you're you're sharing this imagined experience with a bunch of people together who are sitting a little too close to each other right then like if you were at home you would very well you, you get close to one or two people but um, not in the way that that when you're, you're in a, a room where there's 95 people sitting to watch the play and the lights go dark and everybody's quiet in the dark for a moment and then the lights come up on the stage and everybody starts to share in this creative, imagined experience in such a way that you recognize you're part of a community. And when you're seeing something that has, as you put it, that emotional depth charge... And you're sharing that as a group, that becomes a palpable um, experience that carries that your your carries with you for a while. It's very different than a movie or or the you know Netflix stuff in which you have that experience and then you're in your kitchen in the refrigerator and you're moved on. The stuff at Coho in that intimate little black box demands that you think about it more.
2: What what what's your background? I mean, what do you remember the first play you 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 saw or you were taken to? I don't remember the first I remember the first play I
1: was in in the second grade, The Shoemaker and His Elves. I played the Elf Twirl. Um, and I danced quite a bit as the, so I, I, do remember that experience vividly. Uh, uh, second grade, super fun. Stephen Rosenfeld played the,
2: uh, the tailor or the shoemaker. Um, great fun. Yeah. And, and what, what was it that, uh, then, then made you decide to, uh, make theater and performance part of your, or, or make it, uh, the centerpiece of your career?
1: complicated, actually. Um, (laughs) A few things happened. Uh, uh, You know, I wanted to play uh, center field at Yankee Stadium, but that wasn't going to happen. And uh, I kept looking sort of for the same sort of um, uh, excitement, if you will. And, you know, I found it pretty quickly in high school. Uh, My sister, who's a year older than I am, Michelle, um, they were doing a the musical Damn Yankees, and they needed boys, and it was a baseball thing. It was like oh, super fun. I had an absolute blast, an absolute blast. And then when I went off to college, um, I was an English major, but because of the fun I had in high school doing the plays, I kind of hung around the theater department. Got into another baseball play called Simon's Masterpiece about the Attica State Penitentiary riots. Um, in which a prison guard is retelling a story about um, Simon, who was an inmate who pitched against both teams in a game, and he pitched a perfect game for both sides. So there's something about this baseball thing that's going on. But anyway, um, I got out of... uh, college. And, uh, again, my sister was taking an acting class in New York city. I grew up on Long Island. I went in with her. Um, I kind of, before I knew it, I was, I was really involved as a young man. Um, in, uh, my late twenties, um, uh, I got hired by Hartford Center Stage and Mark Lamos was the director and Mark at the time was really big. And, I was just a supplemental extra in a production of Romeo and Juliet, and I was hired because I uh, I was a pretty good stage combatant. Right, I could I could fight, and so the 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 call for the stage combat for the big fight at the beginning included uh, six really big guys and myself. I mean, six big guys, uh, you know, bigger than six feet. I'm I'm about five eight and a half, and um, the fight choreographer, his name is Chuck Connell, he goes out and he gives out these broadswords to these six guys, and he doesn't give me any. And I'm like, Chuck, where's my sword? And he's like, Philip, some people don't get swords. Anyway, he choreographs this fight with two of them until a certain point, and like, you know, 20 moves or something, and they two of them break apart and don't worry about what you do next. And then he choreographs this next group for about 28 moves. And then the two of them break apart and don't worry about it. Then he choreographs the third group for about 36 moves, two of them break apart. Don't worry about it. So they practice that for quite a long time. And then finally Chuck comes over and he gives me a basket. That's a backpack that were filled with these three foot lengths of sausage. And at the 24, uh, moment mark with the first two I beat the crap out of the two um swordsmen with my sausage I ended up beating the crap out of all six of them with my three foot lengths of sausage so some people don't get swords they get sausage he started referencing me as the clown And then Mark Lamos, whenever he needed some kind of color on the stage, he'd get on that God mic through the system. He'd say, get that clown out here. Get that clown out here. And before I knew it, I I was studying clowning with David Shiner, who's a Cirque du Soleil clown. And... um, Uh, And just working all the time doing sort of alternative venue, um, street type of performing. I did years and years in schools doing one-man curriculum-based, character-driven, interactive shows uh,
2: in schools and stuff like that. And, and so you, you came from New York about 15 years ago to Portland. 2003, yeah. And, and uh, when you arrived, uh, were you shocked or were you excited uh, at, at what Portland theater was or what opportunities you saw? Yeah, I kind of loved th- Portland right
1: away. My wife, Maureen Porter, she's from Portland. And when I met her in New York, she said to me when I started to get serious, be careful because there's two places in the world I'd live, New York City or home which was Portland. And I said, no, let's go to Portland because I want to work for that Imago Mask and Movement Theater that had been on my radar for years uh, before then. So I met Jerry Mawad, who was the artistic director of, still is, uh, of Imago, back in 96. And so seven years later, when we were moving here, I was like, okay, we're going to go there and I'm going to work at Imago. And Jerry was the first person to hire me. I did three years for... Uh, for them toured all over the country, went to China with them. I I was very happy with, with how Portland treated
2: me when I arrived. And do you think it's the same welcome mat that's available now?
1: I don't think so. I'm sorry to say, I think so many people are coming to town that it takes a little bit of time to kind of get in. Also, so many of the the theaters in the city have um, formed, uh, you know, are kind of company centric uh third rail repertory theater is is artist driven it is an artist run so it is a company of of theater people um artist rep began a core company in the last few years so that they rotate their their actors in and um you know we all there are so few jobs, and you work with people who you've you've gotten to know, and people who um, you can you can trust, and who can you know that what they're going to deliver. And so it, it's hard when you're first coming to a city, and a city that is has um, is growing as fast as we are. Um, there's a lot of people
2: want to be here, and a lot of people are coming. And you guys have an exciting season coming up. Yeah, we do. All right. Uh, just, do you want to give a quick uh, uh, flyover of it? The Gun
1: Show is happening now, um, uh, A uh, autobiographical play by E.M. Lewis in which Vin Chambry, an African-American man who grew up in Portland, plays a rural female playwright who has had a lifelong relationship with guns. Afterwards, there is a community conversation, Gun Talks, um, sponsored in part from the Oregon Humanities, um, in which people get to share their their gun stories. Um, An experimental way to tell a story, very unique. The next piece is The How and the Why by Sarah Treem. You might know Sarah Treem. She um, uh, has written uh, for a couple of um, uh, television programs, including, um, and I'm jamming on the name, um, he's the president, he becomes the president, uh, um, House of Cards. Uh, And the play, The How and the Why, is a scientific term. Scientists need to know why something works and how it works. And it's the story of two women scientists, evolutionary biologists, one who's 56, one who's 28. They turn out to be mother and daughter. The mother believes in a theory called the grandmother hypothesis. And the daughter believes in a hypothesis called uh, the toxic sperm theory. And it's all about female menstruation. But it's a, it's a play about mother and daughters. It's a play about feminism through generations. It's a well-written play. Then, um, brand new for Fertile Ground, D.B. by Tommy Smith. It's about the uh, D.B. Cooper story. It's right. original piece, yep, mythology, American mythology, terrific. And we close the season with uh, Playhouse Creatures, which is um, had been written in the late 90s about uh, women in the restoration theater, but very much about women in the workplace today.
2: Philip Como is the uh, producing artistic director for Coho. Thank you for joining us today on the Nonprofit Hour. And let's have one more song to take it out. Thanks, Phil. This is la Oblada by the Beatles. Life goes on. Sounds like a fun way to, to wrap this up. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>